Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and today we're going to be exploring one of the many regions described by the great medieval Moroccan globetrotter Ibn Battuta in his Tufat al-Anzar fi Gharab al-Amsar wa Ajab al-Asfar, a gift to those who contemplate the wonders of cities and the marvels of travelling. Well, one of the many wondrous cities he described was the city of Kilwa which he visited around the year 1330. And in that great, greatest of all Arabic and perhaps the greatest of all world historical travelogues, he described the city of Kilwa as follows. It's among the most beautiful of cities and the most elegantly built. All of it is wood and the ceilings of its houses are of reeds. The rains there are very heavy, but the uppermost virtue of its people is religion and righteousness. And they are all followers of the Shafi'i Sunni Law School. Its sultan, at the time of my entry, was Abu al-Muzaffar Hassan, whose nickname was Father of Gifts, because of his many gifts and deeds of generosity. He often raided the coastal lands and captured booty, but he used to set aside one-fifth of it, which he always spent in the ways indicated in the Qur'an. Many sharifs, Members of the clan of the Prophet Muhammad used to come and visit him from Iraq and the Hijaz region around Mecca, as well as other places. Well, over the next hour, we're going to be exploring and unpacking so much of that description of the city of Kilwa, which was the capital of the Kilwa Sultanate, based on an island off what's now the coast of Tanzania, and that sultanate existed between around 957 and 1513. But we'll also be looking at not only Kilwa, but also Zanzibar and the Comoro Islands, as well as other islands and archipelagos off the coasts of what are today Kenya, as well as San Tanzania. Joining me in our exploration of the best part of a millennium of Islamic history in East Africa, with a particular focus then on the arrival of Arabs and the Arabic language and the flourishing of Arabic learning among the Swahili peoples who emerged through these interactions along the coasts of Africa and between the regions like Iraq and especially the Arabian regions of the Hijaz mentioned by Ibn Battuta as well as the Hadramaut region of what's today Yemen. Joining me today is Professor Anna Bang, the author of Islamic Sufi Networks in the Western Indian Ocean, Ripples of Reform. Hello, Anna. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Nice to be here in Akbar's Chamber. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad you could uh, join us. Because today we're going to be speaking about your specialist topic, which is the history of Islam and particularly the Arabic intellectual and religious and manuscript and printed book tradition uh, in East Africa. But first of all, I should sort of sketch out a little bit before you tell us more about this in detail about where we mean vaguely by East Africa. And for our purposes, then, when we think about Muslims in East Africa, we'll often think of perhaps the two regions, the Horn of Africa, what's nowadays largely Somalia, Eritrea, and indeed Ethiopia, where around a, around a, around a third of the population are actually Muslims, although it's traditionally been ruled by uh, Christian Ethiopian groups and the more southerly region that we can call the Swahili coast, that includes parts of now the nation states of Kenya, Mozambique, Tanzania, including the Zanzibar archipelago, the island group we'll be looking at, and the uh, Comoros islands uh, as well. And we'll be looking today then at that 
largely at that second region then, the southern region, the Swahili coast. And there, Islam has pretty much a thousand year presence and architectural legacy and a much richer, and I suppose in many ways, more continued intellectual and literary legacy and ongoing tradition in two main written languages that you'll be telling us about, Swahili, the language of the coast in Arabic, the Sahwahel, the, the coasts, and indeed Arabic, which is going to be our special focus today. And it's worth noting, uh, I suppose, as well, that, that both of these are really more lingua francas in, in Africa rather than necessarily first languages. Nowadays, Swahili is the, the national language of Kenya and Tanzania, but it has a much wider use as a language of learning, a language of spoken communication, as a shared lingua franca. And Arabic has that mode as well, albeit more as a, a shared language of learning across Africa as a whole, as well as particularly across this region of East Africa that was in continued contact, as you'll be telling us about, with, with regions of what we might think of as the, the Arab world uh, proper, or at least more familiarly. So as we start off our conversation then, Anna, perhaps you can set the scene for us by describing the places and people we'll be looking at, and indeed places and peoples that you know so well firsthand? Well, I, I can certainly try. I mean, it is, as you say, it is uh, a region that lies on the eastern coast of Africa, and, and coast being the core word here. I mean, it, it's called the Swahili coast because it comes from the Arabic word for, uh, for coast, Sawahel or Sahel. Geographically, it's uh, green, mostly low-lying areas. There are many islands uh, bordering the coast. There are also many rivers coming from the interior, but mostly these are have not been navigable by boat. So it means that there hasn't been much sort of natural transport or communication between the coast and the interior. And as every textbook on the Swahili coast will tell you it's also very much marked by the patterns of the monsoon. Uh, the monsoon usually or in normal years comes from the northeast approximately in November through February and then it turns and goes from the southwest in April to September. Hence, uh, this is very much part of what has been called the uh, monsoon empires or monsoon cultures or monsoon cities or what have you. Uh, and it's, this has been the case since the time of European antiquity, really, and, and throughout the medieval period up to about 1500. So what we see is that by the medieval period, this is a very well-developed trading pattern that uh, involved uh, East Africa, the East African coast, South Arabia, India, even Southeast Asia, and the even China, like the famous Shanghai expedition in the 1400s, uh, and a sort of very well established pattern of exports and imports from East Africa. I think the main exports would be timber very often, uh, gold, copper, but also slaves, sorghum, millet, these things, and then importing mostly manufactured goods, cotton, silk, glassware. And uh, something else that we will speak about more in detail today, meaning religious specialists, teachers, Muslim preachers, books, texts, and equipment to produce books and texts. So basically this pattern marked the coastal population very much as a middleman culture between the African continent on the one side, actually it would be on the right side, and then the Indian Ocean on the left side. If you look at the map very often, but not always, these trading centers were located on islands. Pate in the which is today in northern Kenya is a typical example. Kilwa, which was is in present-day Tanzania, is another. And you see this stretching all the way down to northern Mozambique, as you mentioned, Comoro Islands, as you also mentioned. I would even add also northern Madagascar to 
to that uh, picture because it is exactly on the tip where the monsoon reaches. Just returning briefly to the monsoon, I, it, it is a sort of over overused trope in a sense, but it, it is very important because of this pattern, traders would come. Traders were mostly, if not exclusively, we're still looking for them, but they were mostly men. <laughs> uh, they would stay over, they would marry into local uh, hierarchies, some would return, some would not, and then gradually this culture would emerge. So many of these traders who arrived and stayed and returned and ar arrived again and so on, they came from what is today South Arabia. That means Yemen, that means Oman, basically from the city of Aden up to Suhar in, in present day Oman. But even also further into the Gulf uh, from what is today the United Arab Emirates and from Shiraz in what is today Iran. I, I think I need to mention before, before we go on in our conversation, I, I'm gonna mention one particular region, uh, which is Hadramaut, which is in, uh, today it's a province in, in Yemen. And it's kind of located halfway between uh, Aden and the um, Omani border in the way Yemen is today. Hadramaut has two main coastal cities, which is Mukalla and Sheher, which has been like the main export uh, cities. And in the interior, you find the big cities of Shibam and Sayun and Tarim. All of these are, are towns and cities which were to have a really, really big impact on Islam in, in East Africa and way beyond East Africa for that matter. Uh, if we mention these, the names of these cities in Southeast Asia, they, they would be meaningful as well. Uh, Hadramaut has traditionally been a center for the Shafi Sunni school of law, which means that it is, how shall I say, mainstream Indian Ocean. This is, this is really mainstream uh, from East Africa, throughout Southeast Asia as well. And when I say, when I say sh Shafi, I mean one of the four main uh, Islamic schools of law. Another really important uh, player in East Africa has been Oman, uh, which has a whole different, uh, or a different religious tradition, which we will return to somewhat in, in our conversation. What's important, to know also, I think, is that Hadramaut has been a very important center for a certain form of Sufism, a certain uh, school or a certain line of Sufism. And uh, we could probably have a whole uh, podcast about what is Sufism exactly. And there are, there are probably as many definitions as there are books written, including by yourself now. The short definition is that Sufism is Islamic mysticism, the understanding of religion that goes beyond the sort of do's and don'ts. To me, I, I, I tend to think of Sufism as a kind of system of authority that relies heavily on esoteric transmission, meaning that it's not just a matter of learning, like as if you study a law book or a textbook, but it is, it's really about getting it, getting it fully, getting it completely, getting it with all your senses, comprehending the almighty and um, the creation that you are part of. So from this, from this uh, train of thought emerges a whole range of lines of, chains of transmission in a way. Uh, and there is also a multitude of rituals and practices that are really meant to enable the believer to get it, to get this kind of sense. So in Hadramaut, a particular such branch uh, of Sufism emerged fully formulated more or less around 14, in the 1400s, we should say. And it came to be known as the Alawiya. It is a little bit special, this one, because it, it it maintains that 
descent from the prophet is part of the transmission meaning that this secret, if you like, or this mode of uh, understanding resides in the bloodline. Of course, the bloodline is the patriline we're talking about here. And this line came to be known as the Sada, which is the plural for Asayid in singular. So they emerge as a kind of group that uh, transmit this knowledge onwards in time. So in addition to the, there is also the knowledge that is transmitted externally, normally by books, by reading, by speaking and uh, by schooling later on. So it's also, I think it's also important to say that from Yemen and Oman to East Africa by sailing boat, it's not actually far. It, it is, isn't that long of a journey, unlike the passage to Southeast Asia, typically, and also comparably unlike the passage across the Sahara to, uh, to Sub-Saharan uh, West Africa, which was a massive logistic operation. Traveling by, by Dao from Mukalla to, to East Africa is something that you could do reasonably easy by, by coasting just going by the coast. And, and there is this whole tradition of poetry that leads, leads the way. If by now you have passed Mogadishu, you will soon see this island coming up. I mean, uh, it, it is reasonably straightforward. Uh, so the trader scholars that would conduct this sort of back and forth uh, passage, uh, they would become, could stay on, become agents, as I mentioned, marry local women, and then gradually you see a culture of its own that stood apart from the people of the interior. And gradually also the distinct language, which you mentioned, which is known as Kiswahili. And these are in fact the people who today call themselves Swahili. They're very, very much product of this. And it predates Islam by how much, we really don't know. <laughs> That's for the archeologist to, to answer. Fascinating. Well, you've really ev evoked the, this physical as well as human geography, Anna, it was so well for us. And, and I think what's especially useful about the way you, you framed uh, the region and the, the background before Islam and indeed the, the context, the geographical uh, and environmental context out, out of which what were things to these Muslim and Arabic based interactions coming is you, you, you set up a certain sense of the, let's say, the, the, norm, uh, the, the normativeness, if there's such a word, or the normalcy of Islam in East Africa, that it's part of this wider set of, of monsoon based interactions and and, and perhaps here it's, it's helpful just to clarify for listeners that the word, our English word monsoon comes from the Arabic mosim, season, because these are seasonal winds, as you said. One season, they'll blow you from Yemen or what's now Yemen or Oman from the coast to the East African coast. The next season, later in the year or in the next calendar year, as it might be, the next season, they'll blow you back the other way. So, so there's this sort of, you know, as many environmental historians, in a sense, have pointed out of the region, there's a sort of a a long durée seasonality and environmentalist that, as you've mentioned as well, precedes the arrival uh, of Islam as well as enables it. And that sense of normalcy, uh, as you said, of East Africa too, is, is, is there very much in the spread of Arabic as a language of learning, of the evolution of a, a language that's originally a contact language in literature then, Swahili, and linguists have argued about the degree to which it is a Bantu language with its East African linguistic basis and how much there's an Arabic overlay. But I think to all intents and purposes, it's a, an East African, a Bantu grammatical language with a lot of Arabic terminology. And indeed the people themselves, as you mentioned, are part of what we see all around the Indian Ocean of the, the Swahili themselves are the analogs to other communities, whether in what's now Sri Lanka or indeed Malaysia or parts of the coastlines of India, or indeed of Arabia itself, who are the, in Southern Iran of the the, the, let's say the, the genetic mixtures of, of, of different peoples through these movements, and indeed the languages that reflect 
those interactions. And the last thing I'd like to flag in that normalcy in the sense of East Africa is what you mentioned of Sufism, because Sufism really was just part of the package of normative Islam everywhere in the Muslim world, really. Uh, and in many ways still today, of course, but, but certainly everywhere until the Grand Reformation of the later 19th and through the 20th century onwards to today, that in other podcasts, we've talked about one of the key figures on this Rashid Aridda, who died in 1935, the great Egyptian. If there is a founder of Salafism, then in a sense, it's we might as well pin that tag on, on Aridda. And, and perhaps you'll be bringing him up as well as we talk about these connections with, if you like, a, a Salafi attempt to create a new set of Islamic norms that also spread to, to East Africa. So as we start to bring in then sort of uh, the layering, or at least the arrival of, uh, of Islam into East Africa, perhaps you can explain for us then, how did Islam arrive in, in East Africa, or at least the Swahili coast that we're focusing on? And then having arrived, how did Islam adapt? Or indeed, how was it Islam adapted by different peoples to these new environments on a what's at least apparently a different continent or at least a, a different coastline? I think different coastline is a, is a better description actually than a, than a different continent in this regard. But yes, I mean, uh, as you said, and as uh, again, every textbook will tell you, this is a kind of seaborne Islam, right? That uh, emerge, I mean, th this is the stuff for archeologists to argue over, but the, the fact of the matter is that just this trading pattern simply continued. Uh, but now the people who arrived were Muslims. When exactly and what type of Muslims? Uh, I, I don't really know. The, what is certain is that you have early archeological evidence from Shanga for, in Pata, for example, from the 700s. So we're talking about a hundred years after the death of the prophet. So it's fairly quickly, the, the spread of Islam in the Arabian Peninsula, and then shortly thereafter, you see it in East Africa, which just goes to show this seasonality that, uh, that you talked about. Uh, this, what used to be then a middleman culture, now became a Muslim middleman culture. And it has actually marked Swahili Islam, I think, to this day. Uh, an early example is the city of Pata, again, on the island by the same name, right in the upper corner of, upper north east corner of what is today uh, Kenya. Uh, I, again, I, I don't want to touch on the archaeological debates because they are too complex, but what happened there was that uh, an Omani clan, the Nabhanis, settled there built a city, it became like an urban culture marked by stone buildings, which is a sort of feature of, uh, of the Swahili uh, city-states. And it became an urban center with all the hallmarks of a Muslim town, you know, the, the mosque, the houses that include privacy for women and uh, social space in the front of the house, uh, graveyards oriented towards Mecca and so on and so forth. The same with the city of Kilwa, which I mentioned earlier. That was according, at least to the foundational myth uh, founded by the Shirazis from, uh, from Iran. And when the famous traveler Ibn Battuta came there in the, in the 1330s, I think it was, he described it as a fully Muslim town, fine and well-built and the mosque is beautiful. And, the mosque is still standing, actually. It is still beautiful, and it is uh, one of the world heritage sites of Tanzania. But uh, arrivals from Arabia seem, or, and or Shiraz seems to have been the sort of main influx uh, of uh, Islam. It came as a trickle, uh, as, as follows from the monsoons, but there seems to have been also certain waves that, that were more than a trickle. Uh, for reasons that are not really quite clear. Uh, one example, especially in the, in the 15 or late 1400s and early 1500s, you see what some of these uh, 
Sada clans, the, the ones I mentioned that are descendant from the prophet in, in Hadramut. One, one such clan is the Sheikh Abu Bakr bin Salim clan. And, and another one is the Jamal Ilayl clan, both also from Hadramaut. And around about this period, they seem to have had a sort of massive outmigration uh, to East Africa, not only to East Africa, actually also to, to Southeast Asia in, in the same period. But they settled in part around about 1500 and they really spread throughout very quickly. Uh, one of the first sons uh, of the Jamal Ilayl in, uh, born in Pate is known as Abdallah Saheb Tuyur, the, the master of the birds. And this was because he died at sea between Grand Comor and Madagascar. So we're talking one generation after the first settlement. Uh, a son dies at sea between, in Pate, in Northern Kenya. One generation later, he dies between Comoros and Madagascar. And uh, the story goes that as the crew was preparing him to be buried at sea, then there came a large flock of birds. Uh, and in one version, the birds lifted the body up and flew him north to his ancestral homeland. In another version, the, the birds are just kind of hovering as guards of honor as they commit him uh, to the ocean. Either way, I, I think the story really shows two things. It shows the quick onward migration, the quick adaptation to, to, to local settings, uh, and it shows the importance of genealogy and writing. Again, because Sahiba Sa Sa Tuyur and many stories like him were written down. The big question is when they were written down. <laughs> That is a matter of some speculation, and that goes for all these sort of narratives of miracles highlighting extraordinary spiritual power, lineage. You find them for all these families and other families too, who do not really claim origin in, in Hadramut. But they also came to hold political power uh, also quite quickly especially during what is known as the Omani period from about 1600 to about 1800 before the arrival of the Busaidis. The Busaidis was an Omani clan that arrived uh, in East Africa, yeah, late 1700s, early 1800s. And this marked a change because the Busaidis really set up a system to govern large parts of the coast. It also marked another change, which was the return to Arabic, to Arabic language as a source of authority, as a career opportunity and as a source of prestige, basically. And from there followed also new, a second wave, if you like. So to, to bring up a little uh, historical conundrum is that we, we really don't have very much writing from East Africa that predates the Busaidis. For natural reasons, this is a humid, hot, rainy uh, region of the world, so paper doesn't last. Unlike uh, in Timbuktu, where boxes with books are buried in the sand and they basically stay forever, here they crumble. Even even fifty year old uh, books are, are are crumbling already. So what what we really don't know is that is whether all these stories of the early arrivals were written down at the time of the early arrivals, or if they were backdated in the eighteen hundreds. There, are, there would be strong incentives to do the backdating uh, be, precisely because the arrival of the Omanis meant a renewed emphasis on being Arabic, being Arab, mastering Arabic, uh, being versed in the Arab tradition and so on. So that, that's just something that we simply cannot answer. Um, 
what we can say is that what is going on, at least in the 19th century, is a kind of reconnection, one way or the other, uh, with the the South Arabian uh, ancestral land, if you like. Uh, I would probably think that these stories, like the story about Sahib Atuyur and so many others, even if they have not existed in writing, they would have been orally transmitted uh, somewhere, not necessarily in Pata, but in another place. And now they are being reconnected in, in writing. Uh, yeah. So we're getting uh, this sense here, which I think is really, really important actually on, we've, we've looked at the, let's say the upside of, uh, of this sort of environment of the, the monsoon winds connect these various coasts together. But also as uh, in another Akbar's Chamber episode with Peter Riddle, when we looked at Southeast Asian similar connections and in a sense, a comparable uh, environment, a similar bit of, uh, of latitude in a sense, uh, that the, the downside of these environments is one might've had these very early in many ways, continuous interactions that we, in a sense, we can, as historians, we can postulate or we can have an occasional textual clue or more often a bit of archeological evidence. But the downside of the this same environment is that written materials or at least uh, written materials other than stone carvings of which we have relatively fewer in East Africa, I think compared to Southeast Asia, um, these don't survive. On the upside, I suppose, in East Africa compared to Southeast Asia, those stone built mosques and other buildings that you've talked about, particularly this beautiful distinct local coral stone that is itself a product of the sea in some geological manner I don't understand. But at least we have that compared to Southeast Asia where there were wooden building traditions. So we have the upside and the downside of, of this environment. And the other thing I'd like to bring up as we gain a sort of more nuanced sense then of, of the role of Arabic that you've pointed us to very well, is that although I've set up, let's say, the presence of Arabic as a certain kind of normativeness or something that we'll find in other regions of the Indian Ocean or indeed across the Islamic world, we shouldn't fall into a trap of assuming that, that Arabic is always there, whether in East Africa or in other parts of the Islamic world, or indeed that it always has the same status or prominence, because in most regions of the Islamic world, Arabic has, written Arabic, let's say, has a complex relationship with other local written languages. What we might say, the waxing and waning between Arabicizing, moments of, in, 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 of promoting the importance of, of written and spoken Arabic, particularly written Arabic, and vernacularizing of whatever those local vernaculars might be, that become written language and literatures in their own right whether Malay, Swahili, or indeed Persian. And that also points us into something which East Africa is particularly interesting for, but again, a, a broad issue across the Islamic world, and particularly across the Indian Ocean world, is the relationship between Arabic and Arabs. And between being Arab then, between being some kind of regular Arab or belonging to these particularly prestigious bloodline clan groups or lineages, that you've talked about then, particularly of being a member of the Sayyids then, the, the paternal lineage of, of uh, uh, patrilineal descendants of, of the prophet Muhammad. Uh, so we're getting this sort of more sense of complexity then, aren't we, of, of, of the Arab presence and indeed the presence of Arabic. So let's take a closer look then at some of the places and indeed the, the, the Arabic texts and indeed libraries that you've studied in most detail. All of them, at least all of the places, small archipelagos then, island groups, whether of Zanzibar, Lamu, or the Comoro Islands off the further of the eastern, eastern coast of, the, of Africa, the continent or the coastline. So how were the Islamic traditions of these apparently remote places related to some of the other regions you've talked about? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's, a, a, that's a big question, but uh, I think I, I will start by saying um, that uh, although these places like Zanzibar, Lama, the Comoro Islands, they, they may seem remote if, you, if, you're, if you're in Cairo or if you're in Beirut or, 
or central or even Tehran or sort of central heartlands of urban Islamic culture, if you like. But within the Indian Ocean system, they really, they are not. They, they, they were always connected, at times more so and at times less so. Uh, again, uh, moving with these waves of uh, in and out migration. And with, they were especially connected with Hadramat and Oman, which I, as I mentioned, are, are not really very far away in, in terms of travel. So when this, when, or to start in another end, the, the question of being Arab and being able to read or speak Arabic is, is one that has always been sort of in flux. In, in all these locations. Of course, immigrants who arrived, they would carry with them names. And, and from the name you could read where, where they came from. Mind you, the, the adoption of these names, we call it Nisba names, the, the name that shows some kind of place of origin or which is clearly connected to a certain lineage, that only became sort of de rigueur, something that you had to do, it only really emerged in the 19th century. So before that, you could be just Hassan bin Ali uh, and with no particular uh, demarcation of your lineage, or you could not. But by the 19th century, you, you, you really see it in use actively. So there is a sort of rise of claiming, if not these really prestigious lineages, then at least I, I came from, and then some kind of village in Oman or another village in, in, in Yemen. Uh, but again, there is this constant influx and constant new intermarriages and constant onwards migration. So there isn't, there isn't a stable notion of, because when you arrive then finally in Madagascar, eh, you might have lost your Nisba already, you know, through intermarriage uh, along the way. But also all the three islands or archipelagos that you mentioned, you know, Lamu, Zanzibar and the Comoros, and then I think especially Grand Comor, which is the one, one Comoro islands closest to the East African coast. They may seem far apart between themselves, but that's absolutely not the case. Even though they are today three different nation states, they, they are still very heavily interconnected. But uh, yeah, maybe it's easiest to start with Zanzibar because Zanzibar is the sort of, uh, was the core of the Busaidi state, which was again, the sort of root of this re reconnection with Arab identity and, and language. And, and this Busaidi state, and this is this what we might call the, the Omani Empire, the capital. Yeah, it, it was uh, part of the Omani Empire to the extent that the Omani Empire moved its capital to Zanzibar, even from Muscat to Zanzibar. So it was the center of power uh, in East Africa, in the, in, uh, yeah, from, from the early to mid 19th century until uh, the British takeover. When we are not going to talk about colonialism in, in this podcast. <laughs> they were there and we, we leave it at that. In 1890, isn't it? Just throw that yeah. date out there. Yeah, yeah because exactly. But uh, from the point of view of uh, the mechanics of the Islamic state, that's what the Busaidis uh, really built throughout East Africa. So they needed Qadis, which is the Islamic uh, judge. They needed Liwalis, which are like governors. They needed scribes, they needed copyists, they needed linguists who could do exactly the Swahili to Arabic uh, translate, translation, but also commentary, like comment Quranic commentary, teaching in mosques, holding the Friday uh, sermons and, and so on. And they needed poem, poets, you know, to pay tribute to the Sultan. And 
so they basically from their state emerged a whole set of uh, religious experts or Islamic experts. But at the same time, the, the, the sort of growth of the Busaidi empire led to the rise of healing experts and people schooled in Islamic medicine and above all uh, Sufis. Sufi leaders who could organize the people. And that's, it is in this that you see a sort of Islamic or expression of Islamic piety that is not Arabic. That could be in Swahili or alongside Arabic or in any variation between them, which is both linguistically and historically very, very interesting and which I believe you also see something similar in, in Southeast Asia, where, where you have this sort of overlaps between uh, local languages and, and Swahili uh, and Arabic. But it, it's really important to, to note that Swahili was and, and remained the spoken language throughout. There, there is no, no uh, doubt about that. Even the most esteemed Islamic figures were Swahili speaking. And, and several, several authors of Arabic language, uh, uh, language instruction, I mean, people who were teaching Arabic, so many of them have remarked exactly that, that you have all these kids with all these fancy Arab uh, patronymics, and they do not know Arabic at all, because they speak, quite literally, they speak their mother tongue which is then Swahili. So they have to learn Arabic, like, like, like you and I did and everybody else. It, it is not a given that you know it. But it makes for a really interesting set of written culture. And it's, it's also one that has been somewhat divided between uh, uh, scholarly experts, right? So you have the people with a sort of Middle Eastern uh, studies background who would study the Arabic corpus and uh, people with a Swahili African study background who would study then the Swahili corpus. But most importantly, I think uh, it's important to note that the, the rise of Arabic as a scholarly language, or the re-rise, I should say, in the, especially in the 19th century, made the Islamic leaders exceptionally well networked. They were then able, in a time of enormous changes in the wider Islamic world, to connect with that directly. They were so, ver I mean, uh, our colleague Roman Leumeyer has called this like a Bildungskanon, something that you have to know to be a, a civilized person in a way. And, and this is what they gained access to. Uh, I was thinking about mentioning two individuals as uh, examples of this. They are exact, exact contemporaries, but somehow different. Uh, and the first one is uh, Ahmad bin Sumait, uh, about whom I, I wrote my PhD thesis way back when. And the other one is Saleh bin Alawi Jamali Layl, who uh, was the one who founded the Riyadh Mosque College in, in Lamu. The interesting thing is that both, both of them were born in the Comoro Islands, in Grand Comoro. Uh, Ahmad bin Sumait in 1861 and uh, Saleh bin Alawi, much better known as Habib Saleh, in the same place in 1853, so within uh, seven or eight years of each other. Ahmad bin Sumait's father was a new arrival from Hadramaut. He came directly to the Comoro Islands. So he's a typical example of a, of a kind of new Arab, first generation immigrant, we would call it in, in Europe today, right? Uh, no deep lineage in East Africa whatsoever, 
but well-known in Hadramaut, a well-known lineage in Hadramaut. So when they arrive, he, they, he would reconnect with his fellow lineage members in Comoro Islands, including then the family of Habib Saleh. So both these uh, young boys then, they were educated in Grand Comoro. They received what it says in the sources often referred to, they received the exquisite gift of language and literature. And then they mean that they learned to speak and write Arabic. This is what they are saying. Mm, nice expression. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of course, they also learned to speak and presumably write Swahili. No doubt about it. Both of them uh, were also, uh, they, they shared actually a mother lineage, which is very important in the Comoro Islands. It has a very particular type of matrilineal Islamic culture was just really, really an intriguing one. But there is no reason to assume that they wouldn't be equally versed in their mother tongue, right? Uh, they studied Quran, they studied Sufism, they studied all the sort of classic Islamic sciences, including Islamic law. But then uh, Ibn Sumayt, he moved to Zanzibar. Uh, which was by that time really the magnet of East Africa, the metropolis, the, uh, the sort of the place to be if you were an aspiring scholar, but also if you were an aspiring trader, because these people were trader scholars. They traveled by ships and, and sold their goods between, uh, between harbors. When you come to the 1880s, then you see the sort of clear element of networking in, uh, in Ibn Sumayt's career. He did this kind of return journey, which is so, so common in, in all societies marked by migration. But in, in the case of the Hadrami Said families, it has a particular religious dimension. They, they do not travel home only to sort of meet and greet the family. They, they are there to study Islamic sciences with the experts, but also to, to know. And again, we are returning to the mystical sense of knowing the realm of the unseen, the, the creator and the messenger. This is really complicated to convey in English, but to, to, to immerse yourself. In, in the fullest sense of the word. So he traveled to Hadramaut, he became a learned man, a religious expert, a spiritual leader, and he reactivates all these links. Uh, here we come to a new concept that you touched upon briefly uh, in, in your introduction. And, and that is the concept of uh, reform that at this particular point in time, we are now around about the 1880s, uh, something happens in Islamic education, in Islamic philosophy, in Islamic thought, and also inside uh, Sufism. The most noticeable is that Islamic education becomes organized. It's no longer a circle where you sit with your sheikh and you can sit there for 20 years and he will never let you graduate because you don't know in the proper way of knowing. It is a system whereby you can uh, graduate. It's big pious Sufis or well-behaved dervishes is another name for it. It's no longer transgressive and ecstatic. It's a system of knowing. Written authority is put over, uh, is placed above uh, charismatic leadership. So one, one of these educational institutions was the Riyadh Mosque College in Sayun in Hadramaut, uh, which we will hear about more about very soon when we talk about Habib Saleh. Uh, 
So there is this streak of modernity and reform going through this, uh, this networking taking place. Ibn Sumait, for example, spent time in Cairo and in Istanbul and in Mecca and India and Indonesia for that matter. And perhaps uh, it's worth mentioning, yeah, yeah Anna, that uh, this period in the 1880s, it's kind of the period throughout the places you mentioned, especially whether Cairo, Istanbul, parts of India, Bombay, especially Southeast Asia, Singapore, when, when printing in Islamic languages, and particularly Arabic, is gathering critical mass. Now, scholars have debated a lot whether in the European Reformation, let's say the, the Muslim Reformation, so to speak, the role of print, but, but it, perhaps it's worth sort of throwing in that... The, as you know far better than I do, it's 1879, just this cusp, isn't it, when the first printing press is introduced to Zanzibar by Sultan Balkhash and, uh, and printing mostly Arabic. Yeah, no, no, that's that's exactly it. I mean, above all, uh, this is the big change, right? Print, but the, the ideas that are circulating are really more going towards, I mean, it, it's not so much about legal reform or changes of pattern or the organization of state it's more like what what should the role of religion be in modern societies right where how should we build our communities how should we build a state should we build a state should we have a caliphate you know all these questions are are really up in the air and they are pondered by influential figures like uh, Rashid Rida whom whom you mentioned, and also Muhammad Abdu, and by the emergence of print, these ideas are just spreading uh, by a rate you have that ha has not been available earlier. Quite simply, the Islamic solutions to the modern idea of progress is really one that runs through this whole debate. And, and the activities of scholars like Ibn Sumit and his contemporary. So Ibn Sumit, after this sort of tour of the centers of the Islamic world, including then Hadramaut, returns to Zanzibar, he becomes a Qadi, he becomes a chief Qadi. He shows really a sort of willingness to engage in, in the worldly matters. These are not withdrawn Sufis who sit in a corner and contemplate. He also wrote several works. Uh, some of them were among, if not the earliest direct prints uh, of an East African scholar. Uh, one of them, the man, it's called the Manhal al-Wurad, which was printed in, in Mecca in 1897. And the interesting thing about that one is that we see that it went directly to print. There is no manuscript circulation of this text. It was authored and printed within the space of a year. So you're, you're already seeing that uh, East African authors are operating within this uh, new era of print capitalism, if you like. A, a new norm, in a sense, that uh, new yeah. printing is a new normativity in that way. That yeah, no, absolutely. But then if you, if you look at uh, the life of Habib Saleh, it's, it's really, it's the same, but in, in, in another mode, if you like. So, as I said, he was also from Grand Comore. He had the, exactly the same background as uh, Ibn Sumait, except that he had a deep lineage in East Africa. He was one of the descendants of the master of birds. So his family had been there for hundreds of years already. And he, he also left Grand Comore, but he went to Lamu, not to the wider world, but just settled in Lamu. And where he set up the Riyadh Mosque around about 1900 or, or maybe a few years earlier. And the interesting thing is that the Riyadh Mosque is a, so it's a straight copy of the Riyadh Mosque in Sayun, in Hadramut. Although he had never been there, he had never traveled there, he never met the founder, but it just shows that this networking moves, uh, although he claims he has met the founder, but in a dream. They had talked, they had discussed this in a dream. The curricula that he set up is also very, very similar to the one in, uh, in Sayun. 
but it's uh, the the main impact of the Riada is that it was not exclusive. It incorporated people who were neither urban Swahili nor uh, Arab. Arabs or people with Arab names or people who were Arabic speaking. These are difficult differentiations to make, but there were also former slaves, for example, or Bajunis from the neighboring area, Somali from the neighboring area and so on. And the main core of uh, the Riada was and, and still is the, the Maulid celebrations held every year on the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. Uh, which is a big, big festival event. But it became an educational facility that came to have re be really, really important throughout East Africa. And again, it has this element of being traditional, but again, being reformist or, or introducing really massive changes. It's it truly had the ambition of sort of shaping the new Muslim for what, what is to come, uh, an orientation towards the future and, and a break with pre-existing uh, traditions. So it, it's a kind of, it can be described as a new moral community, one that you opt into, not one that you're born into, but one that you choose. So, and not least, and I think we should move on to that, it had a very, very good library. So you've spent a great deal of time in and studying and uh, scanning and uh, these library collections that have survived in, uh, in, in some of these most important libraries in East Africa. So can you tell us about some of these libraries, the book collections that have survived through to the present day, despite the what we've said, the vagaries of climate. We can, and, and uh, well, I, I can go straight back to the Riada library, which is exemplary, but there are many more and some are still uncatalogued, but I, I would like to mention the uh, Zanzibar National Archives and the National Museum of Kenya and several others. Uh, but the interesting thing, I, I think I want to make, just to summarize briefly, the content of the Riada uh, Mosque Library and its manuscript collection, because it, it, it really shows the sort of East African tradition. Can you just remind us where that is and the Riada Library? That's in Lamu, okay, the in the Lamu. city of Lamu. Yeah. What, what you see is uh, enormous emphasis on language-related disciplines. Which again is not surprising, right? Because this is not an Arabic speaking culture. You have to learn. And so you see many copies of texts that are intended to teach Arabic, like the Alfia by Ibn Malik and similar texts. You also do find quite a lot of fiqh, which is Islamic jurisprudence, naturally, because they were training the experts who were supposed to become judges. But I think the, the broadest category is that which we might just call devotional literature. In fact, I, I think that is the largest one in, in terms of numbers. There is Sufi poetry, typically of the Hadrami mystic Abdallah al-Haddad, who was extremely influential in Hadramaut. There are Maulid texts, endless numbers of different Maulid texts but also typically the, the ones authored in Hadramut. There is of course a lot of Sufi texts. This corpus is naturally very, very, very Hadrami. <laughs> this is where you, you almost don't find non-Hadrami authors, which is quite uh, not very unexpected. You find this uh, genre that is known as Ijasa and Wazia, and, and that is a kind of handover. It's a text which shows a handover from the teacher to the student that you have learned this, and it often also includes some advice. You should do this and that, my son, to, to achieve your spiritual goals. And finally, genealogy. Not, also not unexpected 
if most of these are produced in the 19th century, which is again exactly the time when reconnecting with any Arab uh, background is uh, highly incentivized, I should say. Uh, what is more interesting is from, from this manuscript collection is also the value of the inscriptions. You can look at the copyists and you can see that they are not only people with Arab lineage. They are, they sign off as Al-Sumali or Al-Bajuni or with Comorian uh, names. Uh, you also can see how these books traveled around, how they moved, how they were bought and sold. My favorite is uh, the so-called RM44 in the Riyadh Mosque, <laughs> which you could see was authored in Hadramaut, then 100 years later copied in Hadramaut, then suddenly given as a gift in, uh, in Jakarta, and then suddenly appearing in, in the Riyadh Mosque, uh, all within the space of 100 years. And who knows why, but it just shows the circulation. You see the same with print. I've been talking a lot about manuscripts now, but there are many rich uh, print collections also in East Africa. And when we look at prints, you see Cairo emerging as the great center. There is no doubt about it. The majority are Cairo printed and they are very often uh, by the famous Cairo printers, uh, Al Halabi. And, and the various imprints of the Halabi print in Cairo. But it's, I think it's important to note that whether you look at manuscript or print, you, you see the same. You, you don't see this massive change that people sometimes imply that, oh, the, the transition to print meant a whole new literature or a whole new approach. Especially you see the remarkable endurance of these smaller prayer books but also the Arabic language instruction books. They just keep coming, reprinted every year. The latter, especially when it comes to Arabic language instruction, there you see some updates, like methodological, teach, until you come to the teach yourself Arabic uh, types. Uh, so uh, what you hinted at, I mean, we are not looking at a copy of the Protestant Reformation. We, we are looking at various types of continuity throughout the period. So you've given us a real sense there, the way that the, the, the texts that have survived in manuscript and print are really the, the written expression of all of these historical, social forces that uh, you've been, been talking about. And not least that a notion of tradition of, of ideas that are handed down and indeed lineages and senses of memory and place that are they're handed down. So as we turn finally to more recent times, can you tell us how this legacy then has been continued, but also contested in the contemporary period? Indeed, the, the Islamic past is contested. Uh, in our day and age. And, and that's the same in, in Zanzibar or East Africa in general. Uh, some would say that these texts are no longer relevant. They have no meaning in our present. And, and the response in some cases have been to shift this type of text from the realm of religion into the realm of heritage. And, and, and profile them as, as uh, being governed by bodies like UNESCO or the British Library, rather than the almighty uh, himself. Uh, but I think rather you see now a shift where you go back to people trying to show that these texts actually have relevance even in our day and age, by grounding them in local culture, in a sense. But there is no real obvious solution to this. Like, how, how do you deal with your past? As, as a Western scholar, I mean, I, I can only answer this academically. I can say that our modern age entails and needs the study of text for the purpose of gaining historical knowledge. Whereas for the believer, of course, 
these texts are there to gain insight, understanding. But for both purposes, it is of course very vital that the textual material is properly conserved and made accessible for those who are interested, whether that be physically or, or digitally. Uh, one obvious custodian for such collection is the Islamic knowledge institutions themselves, as is the case with the Riyadh Mosque in Lamu, which still houses their, their, their manuscript and, and book collection. Uh, in, in either case, I, I, I think it's really important that we involve always not only the custodians, the owners, but also the broader network of, of the community, including those who see this aspect of the past as utterly irrelevant or even unbelief or just plain wrong, uh, and also local scholars and, and intellectuals, in, of which there are many in East Africa fully capable of uh, engaging in this discussion. Well, I think that's a really important point to close to show really how this past, this legacy, this tradition is seen in different ways by different East African and indeed perhaps different Yemeni and Omani people in the present day. And how, as I say, it, it's alive and kicking and fighting back or indeed being fought against by by different people with different ideas about what Islam means today or indeed what being Muslim meant in the past. Professor Anna Bang, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much. Da 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 da